The topic of the environment has been at the forefront of agenda in the media and also in the scholarly fields, but many times it represents Western-centric perspectives. How can one de-Westernize environmental communication scholarship? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Bruno Takahashi in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. It is my great pleasure to have uh, with us today, Bruno Takahashi. Bruno is Brand Endowed Associate Professor of Environmental Communication and Research Director of the Knight Center for Environmental Journalism at the School of Communication in the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University, where he has been since 2012. In addition to these positions, in 2019, he was visiting professor at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Bruno obtained his undergraduate degree in communication from Universidad de Lima in Peru and his master's and his PhD from State University of New York, focusing um, in issues of environmental communication and participatory processes in the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Bruno is a very, very prolific scholar, author of more than 50 journal articles in some of the top venues of the field, over a dozen book chapters, three edited volumes, recipients of numerous awards and extremely, extremely successful at grant funding. Bruno, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you for invitation. I'm blushing a little bit here. It's, it's all true. I mean, it's all true. You've had a remarkable career so far, and I'm sure it will be much better in the future. No, I mean, coming from somebody as, as productive as you, it's it's quite a, quite a uh, humbling and it's an honor. Really. No, please. I mean, it's uh, you, you are a star in the field. So, so tell us, how did that stardom begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that, that led you to become a professor? Oh, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, where, where to begin? Um, uh, it was not planned. Uh, I'll tell you that um, I, when I when I first started thinking about this, um, I mean, after I graduated from um, from my undergraduate in communication, I, I spent a few years working uh, for different uh, organizations. So I, I worked for uh, Repsol uh, IPF for a while doing uh, external communication. I worked for the Peruvian government for the um, National Environmental Fund. I did some public relations work, some journalism work. Um, I knew I wanted to pursue a, um, a master's degree, uh, and I was not entirely sure what, uh, uh, in what area I wanted it to be. 
um, because of the work that I have done, and and also in part because of the influence of my father, who uh, who has worked in uh, forestry in the Amazon for most of his professional life, I started to become more interested in, in issues related to the environment. And I started to think about what what niche I could fill, uh, thinking about a professional career, not not a, an academic one. Um, so that's how I, I started um, searching for um, master's programs and, and found um, the program at the SUNY ESF uh, in, in Syracuse. Uh, and after talking with um, who would become my advisor later, uh, I decided that that was a great place to, to apply. Um, and it was the only program that I applied, which was probably a mistake. Uh, now I know better. Uh, but but I was pretty sad on that program uh, partly because I wanted to uh, I wanted an interdisciplinary um, education um, again thinking about my my background in communication I wanted to have more of a, a foundation in environmental science that that I I, I did not really have I had done done some um, um, short term programs at the Universidad Agraria in, in Peru uh, but but nothing nothing really. Um, uh, as in, in depth as, as a master's uh, degree. So, so it was after I came to the US, um, started working on my master's, decided to do a thesis that I really was first exposed to what research was. Um, as you probably know, Pablo, in, in countries, in universities in, in Latin America, uh, in most countries, um, the incentive to do uh, research, traditional research is, is very small. Uh, so I don't think any of my professors were engaged in, in the type of scholarship that, that we are currently doing here. So, so my idea of what a professor was, uh, was never never clear or, or never, oh, oh, a professor here in the US, I guess, uh, was, I mean, I, I did not know. So it was only when I came here that I really understood, okay, I, I could actually <laughs> make a living out of this, of doing research. Uh, and, and that's when I spoke again with my advisor. Uh, he asked me, um, and I, I, a question that I now, I always ask my students is, why do you want a PhD? What do we want, want to do with a PhD? If you want to teach, you might not need a PhD. If you want to go, uh, well, now things have changed. If you want to go into non-academic career, you can still pursue a PhD. But back then, you do you want to be a professor? Um, and I thought, yeah, yeah, it sounds like a great gig. Uh, and then give me the intellectual freedom to, to pursue the projects that I want to, uh, to do research back in my home country. Um, yes, I, I, I'm interested in that. Uh, so, so I decided to pursue that. Uh, at the same time, my brother, um, I think when I was finishing my, uh, or maybe in the middle of my master's, my brother started a PhD program here in the US. Um, uh, he's, uh, he, he's, a, he's a climate scientist, so he does uh, kind of the hard sciences aspect of things. So we talk about this, uh, about it all the time. Uh, so he did his PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle. So it was because of him, because of his experience as well, that I really came to understand Funding, funding models for uh, graduate education. I had no idea how I was going to pay for it because I was dirt poor. I had just gotten married, and, and there was no way I could afford it. So, so it was it was through conversations with my brother that I I I, I understood how how I could make it work. Unfortunately, did so. So that's when I decided, yeah, I, I can be a professor. Uh, this this could be fun. Interesting. So so you applied only to SUNY. Did you apply? For a master's initially, or for a master's and PhD? I, I just applied for a master's. My idea was, and I told my wife this: we'll just go for a couple of years. Um, it'll be an adventure. We'll go back to Peru, and I'll do work in. Uh, actually, I was thinking about doing some communication for development uh, type of work. So I was thinking maybe I could find a job at the, uh, the United Nations. I thought, I mean, I, uh, when I was working for the Peruvian government, we uh, was part of a 
of a project uh, funded by the World Bank um, um, that was uh, trying to promote the use of non-motorized mode of transportation, so bicycle use, uh, which was not very successful back then. And so I felt like, oh, yeah, I, I, this, this kind of stuff is really cool. I, I would like to do more of this type of work of getting people to, to engage in different types of behaviors um, and more environmentally friendly. Um, so yeah, that was my original plan, two years and come back. And how was, was that your first time living outside of Peru? It was, yes, it was. Um, and it was quite a bit of a culture shock. Uh, I was gonna ask, okay. Uh, yeah, and it was funny, my, my first semester, one of my, the three classes I took my, during my first semester was intercultural communication. It was a, it was a, a master's level class. There were only four of us. The other three students were uh, white women. Uh, so it was a guinea pig uh, in that class. So all the questions were about how I was or not experiencing culture shock. Um, so I would say the first, maybe the first semester, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was after the first semester when I really started to notice more of the differences and, and, uh, and it, yeah, it got a little harder then. Uh, so, but, but, it, but the ending got better. <laughs> okay, and how's, how's the change from Lima to Syracuse? Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal because uh, I had to wait. Actually, um, I had to um, defer my, my the start of my program for I think three semesters. I think it was because of funding. I didn't get. I was offered admission, but not funding the first time around. So I had to defer a couple of times. So I arrived uh, to Syracuse to Hancock Airport in Syracuse in January. Uh, and if you know anything about Syracuse, uh, Syracuse is the snowiest mid to large city in the United States. Uh, so you, there were like. Uh, I remember correctly about two feet of snow on the ground and uh, and the jet bridge when I when the plane arrived did not work so we had to go down the stairs into the snow and, and I was not ready for that uh, because Lima is it's a uh, it has a very mild climate uh, it doesn't get very cold it gets humid but not cold and and there is certainly no snow uh, so very different and quite quite shocking to be honest so my um, the first week, uh, I was fortunate that my um, my advisor arranged um, uh, temporary housing with another student. Uh, she's a student. She was a student from Chile. So it was nice to be able to speak Spanish to someone. So I stayed with her for a week uh, while I was searching for for a permanent place because I back then I couldn't. I, I just didn't find anything online. Uh, and and when she saw me the first day with the uh, with the kind of winter jacket, quote unquote, that I bought in Lima and my my winter boots. He said, no, we need to go to the mall and get you a real, a real jacket and a real pair of boots. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to make it. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was not easy. So was that the Carousel Mall? It was, yes. Now, now, now it's Destiny USA, one of the largest malls in the US. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, yes they, they completely expanded it. And it's, it's quite a thing. OK, that was um, a mall that I used to visit a lot in the early to mid 90s when I was at Cornell. So ah, yes, that's yeah. why I know. OK, so so you arrive, you start, um, you experience some culture shock and but then you get admitted into a PhD program um, <laughs> from there. Did you consider going to other places for PhD or you just wanted to stay in Syracuse? I, I did consider it, but um, but I, I had a very good relationship with my advisor, and and because I um, I, I had two little kids, uh, my wife my wife and I uh, talked about it, and we thought it would be the, for the best to to just stay in Syracuse, um, since I mean changing schools would have been um, quite complicated um, at that age. So, so we decided to we just stay there, and I know that I mean I probably would have been a 
better, um, I guess, academically uh, to go to a different program. That's what we tell our students here who want to continue a PhD. We do admit some uh, uh, master's students into our PhD, but uh, I know that there are, there are conversations about what's more uh, better, uh, whether to continue or not in the same program. So I consider it, but decided at the end that it was for the best for the family. Okay. Now you mentioned that you had a very good relationship with your advisor. From a student standpoint, mm -hmm. what made that relationship so good? Well, uh, I mean, it was it was a relationship that went, I think, beyond uh, the uh, purely the academics. Uh, I felt that I could talk with him about other stuff. Uh, my my advisor had two kids that were just uh, maybe a couple of year old, uh, years older than than my kids. Uh, they went to the same school, so we were part of the same community. Um, I think they even play soccer in in, in, in a team together. Uh, our kids are all this. Um, so, so I felt like I could talk with him about other other things uh, other than academics. Um, he um, he also had a, I guess a, a, an immigrant experience. He was uh, he's Canadian, so um, maybe not not as shocking for him that, as it was for me, uh, but still a different I guess a different country, different culture. So. So we could relate at, at some level again based on our um, kind of experience um, uh, moving to the to Syracuse as well as uh, kind of family uh, circumstances. So so I felt that yeah we had the kind of open relationship. I remember I mean I buy we bought a car. It was I think we bought a a two thousand dollar nineteen ninety four Chrysler Concorde. Uh, with a with a rebuilt title, so it only lasted two years. It was a crappy car, but it was it it it, it, it was good for two years. And I remember it broke down one day, and I just couldn't take my kids to school. So so I I, I call uh, Mark, my advisor, and say, hey, <laughs> can you give me a ride? And he said, yeah, of course, anytime. So, so that was the type of guy he was. Uh, uh, so I, I tried to model my my approach to to mentoring um, uh, in a similar way that goes beyond uh, the purely academic. So more of a I mean, I want to say to that we were we we're friends necessarily, but but it was certainly uh, very 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 collegial and very very open and, and very supportive. So um, so I, I try I try to model that same type of behavior. Excellent, and you know you are in your PhD. Um, you have to think of a dissertation topic. Um, how did you go about that process? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I guess it was a combination of, of factors. I knew I wanted to do something uh, about Peru. My master's thesis was not not about Peru. It was actually a uh, a study on social marketing. Uh, it was more of a of a case study uh, uh, thesis uh, for the dissertation. I really wanted to do something in Peru uh, that mattered to, um, um, to to folks in the country, uh, and so it was that was a big part of the that now from more of a um, I guess um, intellectual um, um, you know, decision making. Uh, I, I certainly, I mean, I, I was fortunate again that the program was so. Uh, it was a very interdisciplinary program uh, that allowed me to to really engage with uh, folks at uh, both SUNY and Syracuse. SUNY and Syracuse, uh, probably for I know, sit on the same campus, and uh, students in, in each university can take classes uh, uh, in either in, uh, at either institution, and uh, your diploma actually comes out as. Uh, graduating from both institutions, which is really, I think, unique um, in the U.S. So I remember taking classes in political science, in communication, sociology, anthropology, all around it. And, and there were, the, the, I think, the classes in political science um, that focused on, on uh, political agenda setting, uh, framing, and, and, um, and policy making that really made me think about 
um, the relationship between media and, and, and policymaking. So I read, I mean, John Kingdom, um, Bound Gardner and Jones, kind of that those classics in political science, looking at, at public agendas. Uh, and so I think those were the classes that really made me think about, can, can some of those ideas be translated into a Latin American context? Uh, so that's how I decided for kind of that more of a the theoretical uh, angle. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I, it was it was an enjoyable experience, and um, and I think um, there was um, back then I don't remember uh, there were many or any studies at least in the Peruvian context uh, taking that that approach. Okay, did you did you consider going back to Peru? Did you knew that we were gonna stay in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. did you how yeah. did you approach life after the PhD? Yeah, no, yes, we, um, I, I thought about it and I had a conversation with my advisor and, and other colleagues. Uh, most of my peers in my cohort, uh, I think most of them, with, maybe with exception of one, uh, went back to their home countries. And, um, and I, I would say uh, most of them, if not all of them, um, ended up working for um, non-academic organizations, so either for um, their national governments or uh, the, um, nonprofits, think tanks. Um, that have um, research um, capabilities. I knew that if I if I if I if I was to go back to Peru, uh, working at the, at the Peruvian University was certainly going to be possible. Um, considering now now that there is a requirement with a new education law uh, for um, professors to to have a PhD, hold a PhD in most disciplines. Uh, so I, I don't think that that would have been an issue. I knew I was not going to be able to pursue uh, research um, because it's not it's not incentivized. Um, there are not as many resources, and there's more of a focus on teaching at the undergraduate level. Very few um, graduate programs. Uh, certainly, no PhD program in communication in any university in Peru. So I knew that that was going to be um, challenging to do. So I decided that if I wanted to give back, uh, it would be for the best to try to find a position in the U.S. and continue doing work uh, about uh, the region from, from a U.S.-based institution where I could have access to those uh, resources. Okay. And how did you go about the job market? How was oh, that? Wow. It was brutal. <laughs> it was not easy. It was not easy, certainly. Um, I mean, I, I was fortunate that I landed in a place like Michigan State. Uh, I, I, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta admit it. It was really, really fortunate. Um, and um, yeah, I can't remember how many applications I submitted. Dozens and dozens of applications. I didn't get many calls back. I did a few interviews, um, and I was, I was about. Um, so, and I, I mean, and, and back then, 2012, there were fewer uh, positions um, with a specific focus on environment or science uh, in communication. Uh, I also applied to a bunch of environmental studies um, positions, so um, so in, in environmental studies uh, departments, uh, which I think it's uh, it's 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 a, a valuable thing of having an interdisciplinary uh, degree. Uh, mm -hmm. So I could market myself as either I mean a comms uh, scholar or an environmental studies scholar. Um, so I, I remember I was about to take uh, to accept a, a postdoctoral position at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, to work with Max Boykov, who is a fantastic scholar, and, and I was thrilled about it, and Boulder is a fantastic place, but I was not going to be able to afford it. <laughs> I probably would have been living outside Boulder, but, but Boulder is fantastic. Um, but I think, I remember um, Max Boykov telling me that, that yes, that um, it was going to work out, that the funding was secure, uh, and I think it was only a few weeks after that I, that I got, got a call from Michigan State um, to, to do a campus interview. 
Um, so, so I had to decline the, the postdoc, and um, and I, I remember it was it was an eventful eventful January in 2012 because I I did the campus interview at the campus visit. I think it was the second week in January, uh, a week before I defended my dissertation. Uh, so I defended my dissertation. Uh, I passed. Uh, immediately um, emailed the the chair of the uh, school of journalism here at Michigan State and informing her of that. And I think a week later or two weeks later, uh, she called me, offered me the job. So it was it was a big relief because you know, I mean, the immigration status is always complicated. I I had to apply for OPT. I think I was waiting for my car. It came in uh, uh, a month later. But but then that that spring semester, uh, I could I I. I, I, I was not worrying about jobs because I mean, I had secure a job. So I was teaching a class, I think I was done with my dissertation. So it was, it was a great spring semester. It was, otherwise it would have been extremely stressful. Um, so I, I was fortunate, I think, uh, and, but I had to time it uh, in a way that, that, that it was favorable to, to me, right? So um, I think I extended a little bit my, uh, my program. So I think I finished, I, I completed in five years because of the immigration issues. Uh, I, could have, I could have graduated a year earlier, um, but I, I, I knew I needed more publications. I, I knew I needed um, to time it so that the um, application for OPT will come um, um, soon, uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but it fortunately worked out, but it, it was in, the application process was really stressful. So now you have been exceedingly prolific um you know you finished if i'm correct da, 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 um uh, 10 years ago right mm -hmm. your phd and you have 55 journal articles you have 14 book chapters you have about 10 or 12 publications in progress uh, at various stages how do you go about keeping up such a highly productive research program how do you choose topics? How do you, um, I mean, to the extent that you have reflected on this, right? Yeah. How, how do you choose topic partners, methodologies, and how are you sure that from that you can actually get publications out in a timely manner in top journals? Yeah, uh, it's certainly a combination of, of factors. So as, as, as you certainly know, uh, at an R1 university, um, very high research productivity uh, type of institution. Uh, grants are a very important part of the reappointment tenure and promotion uh, process. And, and that was explained to us um, from the very beginning, right? And, and I've been also part of the, of the um, RPT revision uh, committee um, that has examined those, um, those, um, those guidelines. Um, but I mean, from the um, I guess higher uh, levels of the university, upper administration, there is an expectation uh, for for us to 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 secure that external funding. Uh, certainly, in journalism, it's a it's a little bit more, I guess, uh, flexible. Uh, maybe not not the pressure is not as strong as it is in maybe some other departments, uh, particularly in the in the hard sciences. But there are still expectations. So, so um, I I think I was somewhat. Um, I think I had some level of preparation. So. Uh, to 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 approach that grant uh, seeking activity because I was fortunate that for my uh, dissertation uh, I was awarded a National Science Foundation dissertation improvement grant, uh, which uh, I was in back then I was really lucky because one of my um, uh, committee members uh, Danny Hayes who's I think now at the at American University in DC 
Um, he had received one of those and he somewhat mentored me in, in, in writing it. So he gave me feedback, he shared his, um, um, his um, proposal. So, so I, and I was lucky to, um, to receive one. Uh, and, and so that was my first exposure writing um, um, a grant proposal, really. Uh, after that, I, I submitted another one, a, a smaller one, uh, in my last year of my PhD with, with um, um, Teresa Selfa, who is at SUNY. Uh, we, we received that, uh, we were awarded that grant as well. So, so I came to Michigan State with, with a couple of grants under the belt, uh, and, and I had an idea of how to do it. I was not mentored or, or I never took a class on, on grant writing. Uh, we, we here, we now at Michigan State, we try to offer those opportunities, whether they're workshops or um, or even a summer, a one one credit uh, seminar um, for PhD students. Uh, so, so I knew that, and based on again the RPT guidelines and a little bit of experience, that I had to do that. That, I, that there was that expectation. So, so yeah, I took a lot of effort and several tries to to land um, the first uh, few uh, grants. And certainly through that grant um, uh, making process, that that I mean, it it guides a little bit of my research agenda. And I know it's a double edged sword where your scholarship depends on the expectations of the of the funder uh, that maybe you don't have as much um, intellectual um, freedom because uh, you have to tailor your proposal to what the funder might be looking for. Uh, but it does allow you to um, hire uh, graduate students to do field work that otherwise you wouldn't be able to do and to do research that I mean that that matters and you're interested in. So. Uh, so a part of, again, my, my research approach, my research agenda, how do we, I select uh, research topics has to do with, uh, with those opportunities. Um, at the same time, I think it's, it, my, uh, my interest in research topic has, uh, has evolved um, uh, in, in, in the last 10 years. Where I, when I first came to uh, MSU, because I was coming to a, a somewhat traditional school of journalism, uh, I, I felt that I needed to, to do more of that traditional journalism research. Right, so that I wasn't really um, doing back in grad school, uh, and I was fortunate to um, to meet uh, amazing um, um, collaborators. Uh, I want to uh, give a shout out to my good friend Edson Tandok, who is at Nanyang Technological University. He was uh, we met we met uh, at our first ICA in Singapore in 2010, and since then we published I think a dozen articles or so. Um, it's so it's another highly productive. Well, I, I, I'm not I'm not on the same plane as he is. He's, he's just in the stratosphere. He's, he's out of this world. Uh, so yeah, so I, I was fortunate to 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 uh, collaborate with him during our first uh, few years as, as faculty, and, and that was very a very productive uh, partnership. Um, we we, we need, I I need to go back and talk with him about how I mean, he needs to give him a little bit of his time to work on the next project. He's too busy. Uh, he would say the same thing about me. He would blame me. <laughs> we always do that. Um, but yeah, so I was fortunate uh, in that sense. Uh, I collaborated with folks here at Michigan State. I had very good mentors. Uh, Fred Fico, Steve Lacey, very, uh, very prolific and well-respected scholars in journalism. I was uh, I, I collaborated with them uh, on a few projects. So, so that's uh, how I also got started and, and somewhat socialized within more of the traditional journalism studies um, um, field of, of research. But but then I started thinking about particularly after after uh, post tenure about what I wanted to do, and and that's when I really started thinking about these issues that that I discussed in the uh, during the, the presentation uh, about about um, the westernizing, decolonizing, and, and inclusiveness in, in communication, 
um, studies, um, um, the, uh, this current uh, NSF-funded project, uh, it's focused on, on identity among uh, minoritized um, environmental scientists here in the US. So, so certainly there's a part of my own identity, I think it's, it's uh, somewhat um, uh, influencing those research topics. So I'm leaning more towards issues related to environmental justice, social justice, working more with communities here in the state of Michigan, uh, Latinx communities. So um, that's where I think I'm going with my research agenda now, narrowing it down a little bit more. Um, still, I mean, still, still with an eye uh, on Latin America, but really I mean, still very involved with uh, Latin American um, issues. So uh, as I have been you know, focused here, both here in the US as well as in Latin America. Really interesting now, both topically, that is the focus on environment and in terms of the populations, Latin America and Latinx USA, your work touches upon or addresses issues that are not the typical issues, either in focus or in population, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, despite all the attention um, to global warming, climate change, etc., among the intellectual elites, it is still a very small portion of the discipline, right? It's not a central uh, field. And despite that, between Latin America and Latino USA, there are 700 million people uh, mm -hmm. in the hemisphere. Neither of these two populations are particularly central to the discourses um, and the practices of the discipline mm -hmm. in the Anglo-Saxon context. So what lessons have you learned about studying and understanding topics and studying and understanding populations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so um, one, one thing that certainly um, comes to mind, uh, the first comes to mind, we're looking at, at uh, Latinx populations here, particularly here in the US, is that um, I mean, most of the you know, social science um, uh, research uh, examining uh, the population tends to be, um, how to put it mild, uh, nicely, <laughs> uh, reductionist in a way. Uh, so we think about again, the labels, where do the labels come, right? I mean, even Latinx, which I think it's more uh, coming more from the academy rather than, than, than the populations. And, and there is, I mean, I, I haven't seen research on this, but I have a sense that it's not fully embraced <laughs> by most people. Um, so um, certainly there, there are issues with how we, um, from a social scientific um, perspective, how we study um, um, this very um, uh, heterogeneous population, right? Very diverse population. Uh, you, you think about um, differences in generations where there are migrants, first uh, generation, second, third generation, what language they use, where do they come from? In most certainly most um, uh, what we can consider Latinx are Me from Mexican origin, but, but there's certainly a lot of variation in, in, uh, in, the, in those populations. Uh, they are very different also in terms of socioeconomics. I mean, you and I might fall in a different bracket than, than most of the population does, uh, but most of the research on, on uh, environmental issues tend to just tend to uh, group them under a same, a same concept, right? In the same category. Which, which is, I mean, it's good for, I guess, it's, easy, it's easier to do it uh, when you're doing, uh, I guess, uh, surveys or, or even experiments, but then it's problematic when you want to really understand uh, the nuances of these populations and whether or not that, that supposedly um, strong support for climate action, it's not driven by 
something like I mean, desirability bias versus I mean whether or not they really understand the topic because based on the on, on the work that I've done, uh, climate change doesn't seem to be top of mind for most people, right? I mean, it's uh, the conceptualization of environmental issues among minority minoritized populations in the U.S. It's um, much strongly aligned with local and social issues. Uh, there's a very interesting study by um, Song and colleagues uh, um, looking at, at this concept uh, or this idea of conceptualization, uh, and they find that issues such as smoking, obesity, access to access to uh, to fr fresh produce, fresh food, are considered uh, to a higher degree as environmental issues compared to white populations. So, so it's a much more nuanced way of thinking about the environment among again what we call Hispanic population. So, I think we need to revisit those assumptions of um, in of people's perceptions of things like abstract issues like climate change. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not an important issue. I do research on climate change, but the way in which we talk to talk to people instead of with people. Um, it's, I don't think it's entirely accurate um, when we are even designing our surveys or designing our interventions. And when you get to present at conferences, when you try to get the work published, with this kind of approach, what kind of reactions do you get? Uh, I think there's, there's an openness. There's, I think there's an openness to to um, to have those conversations. I think in the last few years, I've, I've seen more, even more openness to uh, to accept those those uh, work pieces of work, those scholarship uh, that scholarship that maybe differs um, uh, theoretically or methodologically. Um, so I I don't think I have a lot of a lot of issues or pushback uh, to 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 the work that I presented. Uh, it's certainly not, I don't feel that it's fully embraced uh, and, and accepted, but it's not necessarily rejected. Um, and I, I was I was very pleased uh, just uh, at the last ICA um, meeting, last ICA conference, uh, my, my colleague, my co-editor, Yogadi Stacker, I referenced his work during the presentation. He, he wrote this uh, chapter called Environmentalism of the Poor. That 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 article um, won the top paper award uh, in the environmental communication and the environmental communication division. So that signals to me that there is more uh, openness to try to embrace with uh, with these themes that that have been uh, at the margins for for quite a bit uh, of time. So so I think that it's slowly changing, and I think it's 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 getting better. Um, how do you think? that affects, if anything at all, the younger generation of scholars. Mm -hmm. right? Because for your generation or my generation, to being, uh, choosing those topics would have been quite risky at the beginning, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you still think it is the case for the people who are now doing their PhDs of first few years of tenure track, or do you see some change? I, I do see some change. I mean, I think that, I mean, if you if you look at the, at the job postings that are out there for um, for um, junior faculty uh, assistant professor, I think I see. I, I and this is my just my personal take on this. I, I, I see some more a more diversity, more openness on both topics and populations. Uh, we were talking earlier before we got started with, uh, with this interview about um, DEI, how universities are embracing DEI. Uh, I agree there are my, there there are some problems in how those those issues are conceptualized and particularly how they are put into practice. But but at least there is a conversation about the importance of those of those topics. 
Uh, now, the extent to which they are um, uh, award, uh, rewarded, uh, that's, I think, a different question, um, whether or not uh, tho uh, those type of topics lead to uh, reappointment, promotion, tenure. Uh, I, I, I don't have data on that to, to say yes, um, I mean, go for it uh, or, or not, it's too risky. Uh, I do see that even with um, um, big funders, federal funders like National Science Foundation, uh, there, is, uh, there seems to be a little more openness to, um, to some of these topics uh, based on, again, the, the type of projects that they've been funding for, for some of the social science work. And, and, and certainly um, this idea of um, high risk, high reward uh, that NSF takes, I think um, it's getting uh, more real. Um, and before maybe I mean, it most applied to natural sciences, I think that it's more, uh, uh, maybe it's becoming a little bit more acceptable within the social sciences. So I, I guess, or, or I want to believe that. Um, so I, I do feel, feel that there is a little bit more openness to at least have a conversation. And I'm seeing a little bit more of uh, practical applications, again, in terms of job postings or the type of scholarship that we're um, accepting as, as uh, maybe alternative type of, of scholarship. Uh, again, just talking, uh, speaking uh, from the perspective of our own review of our um, uh, RPT guidelines, where we, we try to be more inclusive of the type of scholarship. So not only traditional uh, journal, uh, journal publications in the top tier um, academic journals, but maybe uh, uh, a, a more uh, topical journal where uh, maybe it doesn't have a, such an impact factor as the Journal of Communication, but uh, that's the journal where uh, that has the most impact on that particular uh, subfield. Uh, or maybe um, some type of scholarship that has more uh, creative um, uh, components, right? So trying to think about how we, we can be more flexible in how we uh, reward um, uh, scholars taking risks, which I think needs to, needs to happen. Otherwise, I mean, we're doing, we're just talking to ourselves and, and, and not really pushing boundaries. Very interesting. And on that topic, I mean, in Latin America, there tends to be a much more permeable boundary between the world of the academy and the world outside of the academy than what has traditionally been the case in the States. Do you see changes about that in the States as well? Or do you still think that for the most part, the world of the academy is its own space that with not a lot to do with policy, politics, industry, etc. Yeah, no, that's 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 a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, and I know I'm guilty of of of, of not doing enough, right? I'm not 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 pushing those boundaries of uh, trying to get those um, those journal articles, those findings out into, into the real world, and and especially in journalism, I think there's uh, it goes both ways. Where there is a, there's somewhat of a resistance from the from the profession. To, uh, to engage in conversations with, um, with academics on the topic. And, and then there is a, somewhat of a, some apathy uh, and, and maybe, I don't know, uh, um, I don't wanna say arrogance, but maybe that's the best word, uh, in, in sharing and, and, and extending our, 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 our findings with, with the profession. Um, I, I know that, I mean, in the last few years, I'm, I've been trying to expand my, uh, my own scholarship uh, into into application. So um, some of the funding that I received uh, has been for uh, for training uh, of, of journalists uh, in Latin America. Uh, so in the last few years, I've done trainings in uh, Dominican Republic, Chile, and, and most recently in Peru. 
um, try and trying to bring those those findings, those ideas into into uh, the real world. Uh, I, I think I can do that now um, because um, I mean I'm tenured. Um, uh, so, uh, but it also comes with overhead. So not not as not as large as a federal grant, but it comes with overhead, and universities just like that. Um, so, so I, I'm trying um, the same with um, um, in uh, this project. I, I also refer to uh, the representation in Puerto Rico. So we're doing workshops. Uh, that's that's uh, National Science Foundation um, funding. Uh, we're doing a documentary, uh, so we're trying to put again those ideas into uh, and share it with uh, with a broader audience. So uh, again, uh, but it's it's difficult just because um, there's little time to do it, and um, and I certainly I'm not good at it. I'm, I'm, I have I, I can't do that, so I have to I have to work. But it's it's also good because it allows me to collaborate with uh, with the professional faculty that we have here, uh, and sometimes we we see that there are uh, those barriers between the the scholar, uh, scholar, kind of the research faculty and the and the professional faculty. Um, so in this particular case, it was great to work with one of my colleagues uh, on a on a documentary, and um, I think that that's that's a good way to to move forward to create those bridges, uh, because he has much better connections with the with the profession than I do. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so. Having talked about your trajectory coming into states, your PhD, how you do your research, how you choose topics, um, issues of positionality, the relationship between the academy and the world outside of the academy. If you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field, right, of communication and media studies to change, what is it that you would wish for? Anything? Anything. <laughs> That's so much power. <laughs> that sounds a little dangerous. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Um, I feel like um, I think again, following on the on the on what I presented during the um, during the um, the public presentation, uh, I wish that there was um, a a time and and place where scholars in communication from, um, from all around the world um, could, could come together and check out their, um, their biases and their baggage at the door and, and just, just listen, right? Uh, because I mean, we're in communication, um, as communication scholars, we tend to be very bad at communicating. Um, among our peers and publicly. I mean, we, yeah, that's, I think historically, even like uh, when we do PowerPoint presentations uh, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of doing that, but we're just not very good <laughs> at communicating. So I'm, I'm thinking, yes, uh, and, and, and again, this is kind of, I mean, since you didn't give me any, any boundaries, <laughs> it's like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking crazy here. It's like, yeah, I mean, we, that we're, we come to a point in time in a place where we check our biases and and we we just listen to each other, right? Without without prejudice, because I feel that there is a sense of of superiority, uh, and that leads to dismissal and, and again arrogance uh, in a way. And some of it is it's completely unintentional. I mean, uh, I have I, mean, I have wonderful colleagues here that do amazing work, uh, and sometimes it's just um, yes, un, unintended and and and. and unnoticed, uh, but it just happens because we're humans. And I do the same thing. I'm guilty of doing it uh, uh, in, the, in the same way. 
but uh, yeah, that we we just we just have the capacity to just to just listen and not not pass judgment so easily. And I'm thinking about journal reviews in particular that can be mean and 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 not not open minded. Um, and, and it happens in all, all disciplines, of course. So, so I don't know. Uh, not sure if that's a great answer, but oh, it's a, it's a it's a great and most needed answer, Bruno. So. Thank you very much for, for sharing uh, your experience and your wisdom with us. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us through the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us for the next episode of the Café Latinx. And once again, Bruno, thank you so much. Thank you, Pablo. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.